WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is our second re-air episode for our March hiatus. We will be back with all new episodes next week, and we are still online at, at The Lineup Pod on Instagram and Twitter, where we do our best to respond to everyone. So please hit us up if the spirit moves you. Today's re-air episode is with Australian journalist Nick Carroll. This is a conversation from last March, so just over a year ago to be exact. And it's a little bit on the longer side, but geez, we honestly could have gone on for days. Nick is such a wealth of knowledge and experience and story. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. We will be back next week with new episodes. But for now, please enjoy the lineup's March 2021 conversation with Australia's Nick Carroll. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. It's got. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's not your boxing. All right. We have the Nick Carroll on the lineup. Nick, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's such a pleasure, Dave. I mean, how how could anyone refuse you? It happens from time to time. I find that unbelievable. How are you doing today? Where are you today and, and who are you with? Uh, right now I'm in Sydney in Australia in my house. Uh, where you are with me is in my office uh, where I write and stuff. There's all kinds of like surf crap hanging from the walls uh, like everyone does 
Importantly, I'm not locked in a hotel room like I believe um, many of the top professional surfers of the world are right now, not too far away. Uh, I can actually go surfing and they can't. So tough luck, gang. <laughs> I have a feeling they're going to make up for it on their wave count at some point. <laughs> things or the other. <laughs> no doubt. Did you, have you surfed today? Are you going to surf? What's it like there? Yeah, it's not that good. It's like it's been a really good summer, but mm. this is not a good day in that good summer. And I'm mm. kind of stoked because I'm a little bit sunburned from surfing over the weekend. It was kind of big. It was a big swell. And like I did what I've been doing all my life and all my friends do too is I just overfroth. Like I <laughs> surf checked it at about 6.30 a.m. and I saw this really big set hit this bomby reef I like to surf and I'm like, <laughs> and quickly grabbed a board and paddle out and surf till about 10.30 and like about half an hour before I came in, I realised I didn't put any sunscreen on. Uh. <laughs> so this is the tragedy of surfing is the like you froth and it always leads to trouble, like always. <laughs> I should know better, but there you go. What is, what is your average surf time these days? Because I, I always felt like when I was a kid, I would surf for mm. like four to six hours. And, and maybe it's an age thing, but but also like being around a lot of like CT surfers or XCT surfers, it strikes me as funny how how all of them are programmed to surf for thirty minutes. And even if the waves are pretty good, like they're like, oh, I got my like fifty waves in thirty minutes, I'm out of there. And I'm like, how'd you do that? But as I've gotten older, I've kind of gravitated towards that a little bit more. How long do you how long do you hit the waves for on average? Well, I reckon that gang they're just surfing heats all the time. But yeah, uh, I don't surf heats like. I just surf for as long as I want and sometimes that's quite a long time mm. and sometimes it's not that long and it doesn't seem to really depend on whether the surf's good or not. I'll stay it for like two or three hours in bad surf if I feel like it and then sometimes <laughs> I'll just surf like an hour when it's pumping and, yeah. and just feel good about it and just get out of the water. It's, it's really, it really evolves, Dave. I think this is a real lesson that you learn as you grow as a surfer and you get older. You begin to learn how to evolve your, ses- your sessions so that they please you more than anyone. And people talk about that in their surfing, like, yeah, I just surf for myself, but, like, come on. You know, there's a bit of you that's watching everyone else in the lineup. There's a bit of you thinking about that um, good-looking boy or pretty girl on the beach who you're trying to impress. You know, that you're engaged in a little duel, a battle of wits with the other surfers who are about your level in the lineup. It is not that simple, but it gets simpler as you get older. Uh, That is a good lesson. But, Mm. you know, as we were actually getting ready for this podcast, I was was trying to retrace the first time I ever met you. And I don't think Mm. you're going to remember this, but you might appreciate the story. So (laughs) um, I, I was uh, surf obsessed as a kid and I had subscriptions to all the US mags I, I could have, you know, Surfer Magazine, Surfing Magazine, Transworld, which um, sadly enough are all kind of defunct in some form or another. But my mom and her family are Australian. We actually lived in Narrabeen on Goodwin Street when I was a kid. So I would go there every so often. And I remember going there uh, for a trip when I was 17, which was after I'd gotten into surfing and I got a bunch of magazines while I was there. I got tracks and surfing world waves and Australian surfing life. And I remember being so like floored and blown away by the difference in tone and, and reverence for surfing. And I, I mean, this is going to sound like a lot, but like the relative literary weight of that Australian journalists <laughs> applied to surfing compared to their U S <laughs> counterparts. And that was where I was, at least in, in, in word, introduced to yourself and Sean Doherty and Phil Jarrett. 
And I did my best to kind of track those magazines and, and writers through college. And when I got out of college, I went back to work at the Rip Curl Surf Center in San Clemente. And Evan Slater, who was the editor-in-chief at surfing at the time, actually gave me a shot at freelancing for the magazine after I'd actually asked to work in the mailroom, which was not a thing. Um, so it's shocking he still gave me a shot to do something. Anyway, Evan invited me over to the offices in San Clemente. And for some reason or another, you were there and you were talking to Steve Hawk about something. And Evan introduced us very briefly. And I, I remember walking away thinking to myself, holy shit, David, you've peaked. Um, and you know what? I probably had. So, <laughs> Well, it's interesting, Dave. We both have like a history then of like crossing the Pacific and having a kind of interaction between these two great coastlines of surfing, the Australian East Coast and the US West Coast, that there's, there, there's such hinge points for the surf culture, both places. What did, can I ask you a question about that? Mm. Like what did you note in your own mind as, the, as like you've talked about like the difference between the writers or whatever and the surf mags, but like what did you notice in the war that you felt was different? Like, what were the differences? It almost felt like the volume and breadth and knowledge. And I wonder, I thought about this a lot too, and I wonder if it's a little bit of a function of, you know, California kind of prides itself on surfing as a lifestyle and a culture, which is great, but in a way you can't go that deep on it because there's a lot of like, it's, it's very surface level, right? Where I think in Australia, my experience was always that surfing was obviously a very, very strong part of the culture, but more accepted in terms of being a mainstream sport. So even if you didn't compete, it just felt like there was a, a more rabid appetite for information and analysis and, and in a way journalism, which, which I'd imagine was a little bit, that's kind of gave birth to like a, a broader, deeper, harder thinking level of, of, of a community of journalists there. Not to say that like America didn't have them, but it just felt different. And it felt like maybe it's part of the Australian psyche as well, where you guys were just a little bit more engaged with one another in the sense of like you could challenge one another. And, and that's probably that's probably part of just Australianism as opposed to just Australian surf journalism. I, that was kind of always where I netted out on it. But did you ever have any kind of similar thoughts or observations when you'd, you'd work across across the Pacific? Yeah, yeah totally, Dave. I've, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities to me between the people who surf generally in California and the people who surf generally in Australia, it's a, it's a surprising number of similarities and that they're often overlooked. You know, like I, I, I just surfed lower trestles a lot when I was living there in the 1990s and I just surfed lowers all the time, all summer and sometimes in the winter when it does get good then too. And I got to really be friends with a lot of the lowers crew, you know, the people who surf there and there's so many layers of surfers at lowers. There's like the you know, the San Clemente Mafia and there's the crew surfing the mornings and, you know, there's the Lost crew and there's, you know, there, back then there was Archie and Dino and and all that crazy tribe. But to me, that, that whole crew, they seem incredibly similar to the surfers I was surfing with back here in Australia around the northern beaches. Really connected, really simple, like in the way they thought about surfing, like I had a really clear picture of what it was to them what they wanted it to be. Their lives on land were probably more complex in California. The demands on your work schedule in California are way more brutal than they are in Australia. So mm. Aussies typically have a bit more time to surf, I think. Mm. Um, 
But there are differences for sure, and a really big difference, a really obvious difference is the the nature of surfing as a community enterprise in Australia. Uh, there's just so much kind of local surf culture at any beach, and you would have fully noticed that at Narrabeen. It's it's really the kind of avatar of that. Uh, mm. It's got a fantastic border riders club. It's got a lot of people kind of in the in the outer circle of that club. Um, it's got world champion surfers, but it's also got epic local surfers that you'll never have heard of who just rip just as hard as the world champs. And uh, that's really similar at a lot of beaches around Australia. There's there's these community clusters, and I didn't really feel that in Southern California. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, and I'm I don't want to go down too many cul-de-sacs, but it's okay because I think mm. we probably will. But I was having this conversation with someone the other day, actually Pat O'Connell, and. Maybe this is there's a version of this happening in Australia, but we were Pat and I were talking about how, you know, over the last like 20 years, all the talented young men and women that are coming up now, by and large, move to San Clemente to surf trestles. You know, whereas yeah. like 15 or 20 years ago, you'd have really strong local communities up and down the coast and, and on both coasts, because people would kind of stay put and develop their own approach and there was less kind of you know, homogenizing of approach to surfing. Whereas now it's anyone with potential and, 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 um, means, I suppose, end up kind of moving to San Clemente and invading trestles. And I kind of get it because you have this canvas to practice at and you're close to the industry, but you know, maybe outside of the gold coast at certain periods of time, it feels like Australia has avoided that in a lot of ways, because it does feel like there's very, very strong pockets of talented surfers up and down the coast. Is that, is that fair to say? That's, Fair to say, for sure. Like, there's places like Snapper, and um, Snapper's super hectic anytime it breaks, but it is really ruled by the sword, right? You know, (laughs) it's, you know, talent is a big thing there, and uh, the pressure's on at a place like Snapper in a way that it probably isn't at Lowers. Mm. You know, you've got great surfers at Lowers, but you don't have Mick and Joel and Steph and a bunch of surfers who you don't know but who surf as good as them and who are scarier, right, as people. Um, (laughs) But then you move up and down the coast, especially the east coast, and you find these, like, sanctuaries of much calmer surfing communities where there's great surfers for sure, but they just take it real easy, you know. Mm. Um, There's not a lot of places in Australia where people will, you know, actively chase you out of the water. Mm. or smash your cameras or do any of that stuff. There are places, but there's not many of them. And uh, I don't know if that's an that's not a particularly Australian thing. Maybe it's just because there's less people here. But there's there's just basically a bit less aggression toward outsiders at, at a lot of spots in Australia. It's, it's just a bit more easygoing in that way. You know, that's interesting too. And I wonder if it, now that you mentioned that, it makes me think of what you said before, which was, you know, the lifestyle in Australia compared to uh, your experience in San Clemente, but probably America in general is is a lot more relaxed. So you can kind of have a healthy balance of like, I can surf and I can work. Whereas just speaking in California to the localism issue in, in, in some places, certainly up north, maybe a function of that is kind of unhealthy capitalism and kind of work-life balance where, you know, the, the anti-corporate, anti-capitalist surfing community has kind of weaponized themselves around localism because they're, they're that much more protected and then probably just tensions yeah. are up in general. Yeah. 
And there's that that powerful driving need that feels like it really it surfaces and resurfaces under the American social structure of the need for individualism, the need mm. for my space. Right. You know, this is my space. It's not your space. This is mine, and I'm an individual. Uh, I'm not part of a community, but I'm up here in the uh, little cowl or wherever you've gone, and you kind of like don't come up here because this is mine. Yes, you know? yeah, it's it very, is. it's a strong pioneering sort of instinct. I think in Australia historically, the pioneering instinct has been expressed in a more communal way, perhaps. Mm. Anyway. Well, we're we're we are like two comments away from me asking about is uh, did we just experience the beginning of the death of the monarchy with the Meghan Markle interview? But we'll we'll keep that. We'll do a part two podcast on on socioeconomic and geopolitical anti colonial uh, sentiments. I want to get back. Have, I wanna, go on. Sorry, you can oh, answer. How, how long can it be before Meghan is spotted on a surfboard? It can't be very long, right? Like she's definitely going to go surfing. That that is definitely going to happen. You might as well get ready for it. Maybe she'll go and maybe maybe she'll go in Kelly's pool. Maybe that's where she'll go surfing the first time in Kelly's pool. I, I, I yeah. I mean, I I, I feel I like thought. you may have just spoken that into being. So that's good. <laughs> I, I truly I hope so. I really hope so. I would love to see that. I want to get back to surf uh, journalism, quote unquote, uh, for a bit, because it, it it kind of is. A, I was thinking about this too, and going back to the story of me being wide eyed and being like, "Holy fuck, it's Nick Carroll and Steve Hawk." <sighs> in a lot of ways, I was thinking about this. You, it, if not from the genesis, certainly, certainly throughout several decades, you can probably be credited as a founding member of what is surf journalism. Would you not agree? Yeah, I don't really think so. Like I was. You know, I was a grommet compared to the people who I regarded as being, you know, the first uh, real surf journalists, by which I mean people who actually wrote and and wrote a lot in the surf max at the time. Um, who, who were those people, I was going to ask? Uh, you know, Phil Jarrett, mm. for sure. You know, he was such an electric force as a young writer in Tracks magazine and I was just a grommet and I would read Tracks at the time, the early 1970s. It was, how do I describe it? Like when I started surfing, surfers were like kind of, even in, here in Australia, they'd kind of like gone back into into recession, you know? Like sure. there'd been this, this big period where Midget Farrelly had won the world championship in the early 60s and, uh, you know, Midget was this force for cleanliness and all that stuff in the sport. And then, then the, the shortboards came in in the late 1960s and, a lot of the people who learned to surf on longboards really backed away from the sport at that point. And the people who kept going with it were super hardcore because it was tricky, that movement. There was no style references for how to ride a shortboard. And so the people who started doing that, they were like the people who followed Dylan into the electric guitar. After mm. it changed from folk music to electric guitar and moving towards rock music. Uh, the feeling was the same too, I think, like the shortboard's the electric guitar, right? And the longboard is the acoustic. And so if you want to play the electric guitar, you've got to do it all, feedback, distortion, everything, every turn, every crazy move that people were trying to invent then. It just took them way out of the mainstream in every way. Mm. Uh, you had to go and live in places like Angari and Margaret River and Bells Beach and further 
west from Bells and um, these places on this wild coastline of Australia where you had to set up a life that didn't rely on anything normal. <laughs> and so for a kid like me, you know, me and my friends and my little brother, we were just growing up as little suburban kids in Sydney and the Tracks magazine of that time and Phil's writing, it was like an excursion out into the wildness of the life that we could have, you know. And so there was Phil and Tracks uh, and there was the beauty of the Surfing World magazine and there was Drew Campion who would work for Surfer and for Surfing but always seemed to just channel some of that, you know, amazing kind of counterculture magic that was so alluring to kids in the 70s. You know, we all wanted to be different. We all wanted to live a different life. And that was the lure of writing for me with surfing. Like I was, I, I liked to write long before I started surfing. But when I knitted up the two, the idea for me was that I guess I was going to try and describe a kind of life that hadn't really been lived that much yet. You know, it was still fresh. And that was a big appeal to me as a, a journo. But I was still a grommet compared to Phil and Drew and co. Those people, they led the way. We just, I just followed, really. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that makes me think, when you asked me like what the difference was between Australian journalism and American journalism when I was growing up, one thing that was really similar for me was it felt like when I would read it surfing, it was cool and I loved it and it was exciting, but it was, it was sort of a window to all sorts of other things outside my life, right? right. In, in the sense of it would be, my world would become much bigger than Orange County, California, because I could read about it. And it wasn't just about the surfing. It was like, this is how these people live and these are their values. And like, this is the food they eat. And, and, you know, this is what they look like. And, and it, that's what I really loved about it. And that's what really like fed my obsession with it. And then it, I always, I'd mentioned this before as a sort of a contrast to what it felt like it was doing just broadly in surf media and sort of the mid to late oddies, which is it kind of became more and more insular and self-referential and, you know, in social media kind of took over. And it, for me, it broadly just lost that big window into different stuff. Totally. Like what were you trying to describe at that time? You know, what was there to describe? Like some of the journalism that you would have got really into at that time was, would actually have been painful to both to write and research and to perhaps to read because in some ways it would have been journalism about the death of the culture. Sure. You know? I remember doing a trip up the California coast trying to write about the death of localism yep. and going to visit all these different spots like Palos Verdes and Silver Strand and um, Hazard Canyon and uh, uh, Newbreak down in San Diego and, and you could feel at the time that there was a whole kind of culture that was beginning to wither on the vine of, of that old school kind of like mine localism at these spots. Uh, and and that, that was, there was something really good about that because I think there was things about that hard localism culture that was really stifling and not real good for anyone, not the locals or anyone. But at the same time, it it's a passing, right? It's a, it's, mm. it's a culture that's dying. And to write about that was kind of hard. Like I remember writing the story and thinking, well, it's a good story, but it's, it's not a super fun story, you know? Mm. Um, the stories people were writing back in the 70s about surfing were super fun, like crazy. 
stupid behavior, travel crap, you know, um, adventures, people starting to surf the really great waves really well. Uh, the, uh, the stars of the time, the surf stars, Lopez, Reno, Michael Peterson, you know, just these fantastic humans uh, that came across so brilliantly as larger than life. That stuff's easy to write and make fun. It's harder to write about stuff that's difficult and unpleasant. And that's something that surf journalists always avoided. Yeah, and it, you know, and I, you can heat check me on this one too. But we like I, I think about this a lot, and we talk about it on this podcast a lot. And it it kind of overlaps with what you're saying in terms of you know, in the '70s and and in the '80s to a degree. Like everything was so fresh, and and surfing was so counterculture that just writing, you know, truthfully and honestly and genuinely about it was just exciting because you're tapping into something that was a little bit more pure and. and I'm going to try to sound as nuanced as I can here, but it feels like in a lot of ways, the institutions that have been built on top of surfing, whether that's, you know, the sport or the industry or the media have tried to synthesize that real pure progressive nonconformist in a way, you know, kind of culture and then sell it, which in and of itself is corrupting. And then, you know, from a media perspective, you know, you look decades on and it's like, what am I talking about? I'm talking about like... (laughs) kind of a sad echo of what was cool, you know, in the beginning, you know, and I guess it's not unique to surfing, but it's something I think about a lot. Yeah. Uh, look, Dave, yeah, it's an interesting one. Can you, let me ask you another question. Can you kind of pinpoint an example or, or a time where you came across that feeling of like, wow, this, the way surfing's being presented is, has really now become quite distant from what it actually is. Can you remember something happening to you that caused that feeling? Uh, the challenge will be pinpointing one that's not going to get me fired. The, um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> or in trouble. I, you know, and I, and I say, like, it's on, I'm flattered you'd ask me that question, Nick, but it, it's also one of those things, too, where, you know, I, I didn't start surfing till I was in my teens, and I was, I was from Mission Viejo, California at that time, and I don't, I kind of have a maybe maybe too much self-awareness about like what an authority I, I am in terms of answering that question. I, I know my, my, my experience is a lot like secondhand, you know, stories and reading about it and in terms of the conversation we're talking about. I think I was having this conversation with someone the other day and I don't, I don't mind talking about it because I've talked to them about it. But I was really, really excited just to, to use a recent reference when with you know Dane Reynolds and Kai Neville and the Modern Collective and Travis Ferrey at surfing and what they were doing at What Youth mm-hmm. in, in the beginning. And then kind of when he broke away and they started doing What Youth and they started doing more films, it felt like it was more of a reaction than a creation in a lot of ways. And and it was this weird, you know, kind of Ouroboros of, of confusion for me, right? Because it was, you know, and and you know, Noah Dean's kind of fuck the WSL, you know, as righteous as it may have been is a little bit like, yeah, but that, that you can't be defined by being a reaction to the establishment within an anti-establishment community. You know, so I was kind of going down this rabbit hole of like, what are we actually rebelling against here? And not that none of, not that that wasn't valid at all, but it like, we weren't, we weren't rebelling against getting drafted or consumerism or, 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 racism or any of those things it was just kind of 
it, it felt like pageantry to me, I guess, in a way. Yeah, there's that that feeling. It's a parade, right? Um, mm. Yeah, it's funny that term, that notion of rebellion in surfing. There's, to me, in the West, in Western culture, in the way we live our lives, there's only one real rebellion that's brought on by surfing, and that is, uh, it's a rebellion against employment. <laughs> okay, like when uh, Hawaiian people. Uh, first developed this, the, the world's really first serious, full-on generational surfing culture. I know surfing sprung up around the world in all sorts of different places, all sorts of different ways, uh, not all at the same time, but not all in reference to each other, right? But Hawaii nailed the surf culture down. And one of the reasons they were able to do that was because the the employment they were engaged in didn't take up a whole lot of time. Like it's been estimated, the average uh, number of uh, the imagine the, the average annual workload of a typical Hawaiian in the days pre-colonisation was about four months a year. So you know that's like fish ponds and farming and just looking after the stuff, building stuff, all that. You know, making surfboards. Um, so they had heaps of time to do what is essential if you're a surfer, if you want to be a surfer. You have to be willing to drop other stuff in order to surf when the waves get good. And you have no way around that, okay? We're trying to make ways around it right now with wave pools and stuff. You know, we try with surf forecasting to give people the opportunity to rearrange their lives a bit more easily than they used to, right? But it is still there, right? When the waves are really great on a Wednesday and Thursday, do you take that Wednesday and Thursday off or you do you go to that critical meeting that you said you'd go to a week ago, right? So it's surfing versus employment and that's the rebellion. If you can work out a way to go surfing whenever you want and yet still remain like with your head above water and able to eat and have somewhere to live and, you know, hopefully a, a good job, you know, and look after your family, then... You may seem like you're quite a normal person, but I don't think you're normal. I think you've <laughs> made a life out of, out of nothing, kind of. <laughs> mm. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who are like that. They they they're tradies. That you know, these people who could have been professional surfers once, maybe. You know, mm. um, but instead they've gone right. I'm gonna like get a job, but I'm gonna make my job fit my surfing habit. Mm. And you know, they've been able to do that. They've, you know, they've got plumbing businesses or whatever. They hire apprentices. They make the apprentices go into the houses and get dirty and stuff. And they go, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> and then they come surf with me out the peak at Newport. Um, <laughs> and they, but they go to Indonesia every year, you know, a couple of times, most of them, you know, mm. boat trips, the whole bit. They get as many great waves as anyone. They've been rebels in their lives. They are not doing what their parents did. Yeah. And that, that idea of rebellion too, it's so sexy and it, it is transcendent well outside of surfing that it, it is one of those things where we're talking about that's, some, that's, that's sort of a stallion those institutions have tried to harness in a lot of ways too, which has brought us to a very odd place in my opinion of reckoning in recent years, if not for decades, which is if we love the idea of rebellion and and the cousin of progressive nonconformity is an identity for surfing, why why the fuck are so many of surfing's institutions skewing so horrifically conservative 
in terms of being frightened by women and people of color and, and people's sexuality in 2021. It's it's wild. That it, you're right, mate. And I, honestly, I think this comes down to, to just surfers. It's it's not necessarily the industry or whatever. Mm. Uh, they're just they're just a sort of shadow of the actual surf communities of the world. And a lot of surfers today are, are extraordinarily conservative about that. You know, I don't know how to say what I feel about um, Tyler. Right? Okay. Mm. So lately, Tyler's been most outspoken um, about her own life and about the things and issues that she feels are important. Uh, things in which she's been totally willing to be candid about and explain how she came to her thoughts and insights about. And and she's been mercilessly attacked in the comment sections of numerous surf websites um, by mostly by men, sometimes by very trolly kind of men, you know, but mostly by men for daring to be a woman and having an opinion. It, it's it's I, I'm like I'm like wake up to yourselves, you guys. Are you the counterculture rebels you dreamed yourselves to be, or are you just your parents? Have a think about it. <laughs> I, w- I wonder if they're even worse because a lot of them are the same people that bitch about pro surfers are uninteresting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. And uh, as we all know, pro surfers are very interesting people. Um, they do disguise it very well. Uh, it, it's interesting. I, you know, this is one thing that's really changed about professional surfing over the years is that most of the top pros now are, are finely tutored in the way they should speak to the media and in the way they should present themselves in public. And only sometimes do you really see who they are in public. Mm. You definitely see who they are when they're riding waves. And, you know, I strongly encourage anybody who is, I don't know, interested in professional surfing just to pay attention to that, right? Like check out what people surf like. Because you'll find out a lot about them, who they are, how they behave in a heat, how they behave in the water and what the kinds of waves they love to ride and the kinds of, if you're lucky enough to be in the water with them, the kind, the amount of space they'll give you in the water. Mm. You find out a lot about people just through that, possibly more than you'll find out by their media presence. Whereas that wasn't always the case. Like I don't think Peterson, Michael Peterson, for instance, had the faintest idea about media presence. He certainly wasn't tutored in it by anybody, right. you know. He wasn't earning the kind of money that would allow him to hire a tutor, even if he was so inclined. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think that was true of a, a lot of his crew. They just, the, the surfers of that generation were just out and out themselves, often, you know, in ways that that just built the superstructure of what the industry relies on, you know. It does fascinate me that, that a lot of the great surfers of today do feel like they have to act apart, mm. and and I just I, th- I think like the ones who don't who step away from that, you know, good for them. But there's not many of them really anymore. It's 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 I, I think you're touching on another thing that fascinates me too, which is I think counter to a lot of other sports, and I'll overgeneralize, but surfers themselves. And I'm going to really overgeneralize, and I've said this before, but kind of suffer from a mass crippling social anxiety in a way. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it is chicken or egg, right? I don't know if it is these are people who 
have social anxiety. So they've, they've gravitated towards surfing because people leave them alone and they've done that so much that they've gotten really good and that now they're really good. Or if, because they were spending so much time getting good, they've developed kind of social anxiety. But it's this interesting thing that it's very, very rare that I've found people, and I could name maybe Kelly, maybe Gabriel, who are okay being famous or want to be famous. You know, most of the professional surfers that I work with and encounter want to get paid enough so they can surf and be left alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot. I think what you're getting at, too, is a little bit of the... The tutoring there is actually sort of a tactic to do that, where it's like, I'm going to say the right thing so I can be left alone. I'm sure you're right about that, Dave. You can see how easily uh, Fanning and Parkinson have slipped in to retirement and Taj Burrow as well. You know, like once upon a time, retirement was like a terrifying thing for a professional surfer. Mm. Uh, they would come off tour. They would maybe have some financial resources, mostly not. Uh, and they would suddenly be confronted by the thing they'd been avoiding since they were about 16, which is like, oh, crap, this is the real world now, I have to get a job. And for a lot of them, it, that was a really major struggle. I watched a lot of my own peers go through that struggle. Nowadays it feels to me like a lot of them get set up financially in their mm. careers and then they move off tour and the, moving off the tour is a great relief because, you know, fame... It's like a martial art, mm. you know? Like Kelly's like a six-degree expert in fame, right? There's not many people who get as, as good at being famous. I would <laughs> say the, the fine line between madman and genius with Kelly and fame. I, I don't know. Like some days I'm going, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but he's like that anyway, mate. Like, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. always be an eccentric sort of person, Kelly. You know, even if he was... You know, just a sort of carpenter in Florida. You know, yeah, he'd still be uh, a bit eccentric. Um, but the the way I've I've watched that guy deal with being famous, like his ability to kind of switch on and off, um, depending on the situation, his ability to be really easy with people in public, and then just to sort of switch off and move away. You know, mm. and go back into his own life. Um, that that stuff takes enormous amount of learning and training it's not by accident um not people not many people get that good at it and a lot of them instead choose what you're describing there you know um develop the media skills just shut you know use them to shut people out of your life and just live your life quietly if you can you know we got to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors but uh we got much more to talk about when we come back so we'll be right back WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So Nick, you, you mentioned that you you gravitated towards writing before you even got into surfing but you know you yourself um i've had the pleasure of surfing with you a bunch of times or, or high high level surfer was there ever any point for you in your development where you went oh i'm, I'm maybe i'm gonna give competitive surfing or a professional surfing career and um a crack mm. oh yeah for sure like i don't know you know competitive surfing is it's like a it's like a little channel that you can go down for a while. Mm. I think anyone who's a really good surfer is going to benefit at some point if they spend a bit of time going down that channel because it'll teach them uh, layers of discipline in their surfing that they can't develop in otherwise. But it also depends on what your goals are. And, like, I had a goal as a surfer from quite young time of reading tracks and all that stuff is, uh, like, I'd read about Michael Peterson being a Australian champion. I read about Terry Fitzgerald being Australian champion and I thought, I want to be an Australian champion. Like, I want that. So I kind of went after that at one point and I won a couple of them and I was pretty stoked with that. I thought, that's cool. That's what I wanted to do, you know. And I sort of thought about like pro surfing and I went in contests and uh, I did okay in some of them and I felt like I could do really well, actually. I, was thought, I thought, you know, I could do really well at this. But there was a couple of things I had to think about. One was, and I know this sounds a bit weird, was my little brother, okay? Mm. Now, we lost a parent quite early in our lives, our mum, and from then on I always felt quite responsible for Tom. It's something I've only really thrown off in the last 10 years or so. Mm. I felt like I had to look after him and I could see he was this phenomenal surfing talent, okay, just brilliant. But he's not like me. I'm a very competitive person. Tom's not a really super competitive person. He he just loves to surf. And he and what his whole trip was, was always was really was try to get it down to a fine art, you know, and mm. he used competition to help him do that. But he wasn't as ferocious a competitor as I was. Mm. And so I kind of could see a point where if I was going to be a pro surfer and Tom was going to be a pro surfer, that at some point I was going to have to go to war with him. Mm. And I could feel that in the background, just this feeling of like, I'm going to have to, like, if I want to do really well at this, I'm going to have to learn how to beat Tom and I'm going to have to, and I'll probably do it in a nasty way because I'm just, I'm a nasty competitor, okay? Mm. I'm not like a, I'm not like a fun guy. <laughs> I've found ways to channel that in the competition, like the Molokai race, things like that, you know? Mm. 
Um, and like I'm all shaky handsy before the race and after the race, but in the race, I'm going to give it everything and, and I'll tear an opponent to pieces if I can. And I just thought, is that the kind of thing I want to get involved in with my brother? I just couldn't see it. I was like, you know, one, one or other of us is going to come out of that, the winner, and it might be me and it might be him, but whoever it is is going to damage the other one. And, like, mm. I just, it just didn't feel right to me to do that. Uh, I, also, I've got to say, it didn't feel totally right for to, to give myself over to competition in surfing in that way anyway. Like, surfing has always felt to me like something phenomenally deeper than competition, like mm. de- developing your skills. You can use competition to do that, but um, it wasn't something I wanted to live or die by in surfing. I, I just I wanted to get to be a good surfer and really develop all the abilities that requires and uh, and also to I was also like really keen to to document and to do what I'd watched Jarrett do and what I'd watched Drew Campion do and you know use my other skills in the service of the sport in some way mm. and so I just felt like I just slipped into the writing and the journalism quite easily because of that like it wasn't some sort of thing where oh god I, I really wanted to be like you know a champ champion surfer but I gave it up to be a writer it was it was more like I just easily let that go and moved into the journalism and the writing and um, really uh, found myself in that. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting um, insight and reveal that I've I've heard a few times in in doing this podcast with with really high level surfers. Where probably my bias coming in is is feeling that you know the the machine or you know the sponsors or the competition or whatever uses these people and and they either succeed or not. But what I hear a lot back. Is is people kind of intentionally saying, well, no, I, I didn't have to compete, but I did it because I wanted to get good or to build a muscle because it made me surf better. And that's what I did it for. And, and I mean, it's it's really simple and obvious, but it it always it just never struck me until I started talking to people about it. And I hear it more often than not, especially when talking to I guess, quote unquote, free surfers now who have a competitive pedigree from when they were younger, which is virtually 100% of them, they all say the same thing. They said, oh, I don't regret competing at all because it sharpened me and gave me the tools to do what I do now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, honestly, I can say like many years of, you know, watching professional surfing and being around professional surfers, I've seen very few of them being used by giant corpos. Mm. It's usually the other way around. <laughs> sure. They use the corpos to fund their surfing lifestyles and they do exactly what the hell they want for as long as they want to do it. Mm. That's the truth. <laughs> um, so I've got a question for you though, Dave. Yeah, hit me. If you surfed in many heats, tell me about your own competitive experience. Like what, what does competition feel like for you in surfing? I, I mean... Many heats, uh, a few dozen, right, between, like, high school and college, really. Yeah. I, I just, it's funny, right? Like, I, you, you end up becoming a product of your environment and in so many ways, especially in surfing. And I, I was late to it, and I remember surfing, you know, closeouts at San Clemente Pier and thinking that was a good wave and thinking that uh, if I could do a chop hop, I don't even need to know what a bottom turn is. 
And legitimately, like that was kind of like my peer set was like, yeah, that's all we do. We just go straight into chop hops. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then kind of got a little bit better and then, you know, bumbled through a few heats. And I remember having this like shock and awe. Well, I'll show you back up. Fully bought into the dream. I'm like, well, yeah, no, I got through like an NSSA heat. I, I should apply for the QS now. I'll be on tour in a few years, high-fiving Andy and it'll be great. Um, totally. Very firmly held on to that dream up until a few years ago, I'd say. Um, every time I'd surf, I'm like, yeah, I can get this done. And then I, I remember coming to work for the ASP. I remember going to Hawaii and I remember surfing in Hawaii at a few places and like thinking that I was not like a great surfer, but certainly self-deluded and had competed and had gotten through heat. So I had like a validation for like, yeah, I'm not like insane. Yeah. And I remember surfing a few times in Hawaii and coming back to the rental house and thinking, I don't think I actually surf. I don't think what I do is surfing at all. Like, I, I was just like, I'm like, I have to deconstruct my entire self, which was easy because it tapped into my self-loathing. And I was like, great. I just build myself back up from the beginning. And I just kind of tried to teach myself again. So I don't look back on it as any missed opportunity. But again, but within it, with like, as scaled as I can be and, and as humble as I can be in that, it's a similar thing. I, I gravitated towards competition in my small, small, small version of it because I thought this is going to make me better. And it did. It did make me better, w way better than I had a right to be. And even is, you know, within, within reason. So yeah, that was always it for me. And it's, I still do the same thing. I still, I'm 37. I still think I surf way better than I ever have in my whole life because I'm learning more and thinking more about it. Oh, man. Well, you probably are, Dave. Um, well, the bar was really know. low for a lot of years, too, so it's easy to... <laughs> <laughs> I love that description of getting out of the water and going, I don't think I actually surf. Uh, you know what? I think you probably spoke for like 99.99% of the world surfers there, Dave, because mm. that would be an experience that very few surfers have managed to avoid in their lives. That sense of like... Holy crap, I can't surf at all, even though I thought I could. That, by the way, folks out there, that is the beginning of your learning how to surf, okay? When you're no good and you think you rip, you're a victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect, <laughs> you know? And there are a lot of people who are victims of that in surfing. In fact, I'd say it's like a very important part of the process. You know, you go out and you think you rip and you don't. And eventually you're going to come up against that pretty hard. Boom. And when you come up against it, then you can start learning how to surf. I, the, the other big revelation in being on tour too, which didn't have so much to do with my own ability, but more of just a, like a, a heavy, heavy realization yeah. was, was, you know, watching videos and reading magazines and watching like early versions of the, the webcast. And, and to this day, it's probably still the case. Like you look at the top five men and women on tour, there is distance between them and the field. Often. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, when you're young and stupid and drinking beers with your friends and watching the webcast, you're like, number 45 on tour, that guy fucking sucks. You know? <laughs> and then, you know, going on tour and working and seeing number 45 surf in real life, you go, that's the best surfer I've ever seen in my entire life and way faster than I ever thought and way straight. It's, it's the level on tour is so much better than anyone appreciates who hasn't seen it in real life. Yeah, yeah, it's like a horrible traveling board riders club where everybody's better than you, like everybody. <laughs> and and um, 
and I think that's a really another kind of misperception you've pointed out there, Dave. I, I know people who are pretty good surfers who are avid professional surfing watchers who watch every contest, every heat, and they say stuff like that. Oh yeah, you know this guy is down at number thirty-one. He's not really very good, you know. But they've never, or they very rarely come into contact with that person. And if they showed up at an event or if that person showed up at their beach and went for a surf, they'd be flabbergasted. Like anyone looks a bit odd next to John John Florence. Sure. That's just how it is. But don't be misled by that vision that you see all the time. That, that to me also plays out often even with sort of the surfing industrial hype machine with sort of the, the darlings that end up making it to the tour and, and just getting their heads kicked in by, by oh. trenchmen, you know? And there's this huge dissonance between, I mean, we could talk about it. I mean, some of the videos that Nike was putting out about Kolohe Andina, who is a world-class surfer, but before he qualified, were in the vein of everyone's expectations, maybe his, maybe not, we're like, all right, well, he should win a world title. And he got on tour and it's like, no, the tour's really hard and everyone here's really good. And I actually think that that disconnect between how, how he was hyped and how he actually performed hurt him early on and he's, he's since recovered. But like, I remember he made the quarters in France one year and the surfing world was still talking shit about him because he wasn't winning the world title. And it's like, quarters as a rookie is pretty good. Like... Mm. But you have this weird expectation management issue. Mm. Yeah, look, I, you know, the industry's been trying to create surf heroes forever. You know, to go back to the 60s um, on that one, there's, they're always trying to invent some hero, right, mm. or heroine, as the case sure. may be these days. And yet those, those people will tell you, I bet Chloe would tell you right now, he'd say, man, maybe they were hiking me at that point, but, like, I didn't know a thing about what's was up, you know? Sure. Like he's a lot wiser now and he's a lot better surfer, like a lot better than he was yeah. then. Totally. And, and he's still not winning world titles yet. <laughs> hasn't, hasn't, hasn't won a CT yet. Yeah. It's, so it's crazy. how crazy is that? That's just unbelievable. It tells you what, what's going on at that level of surfing. When when you what – were, what were, how would you describe your role with Tom when he was competing and winning world titles? Far out. Okay, so at that time when Tom was like surging, he got himself a manager, mm -hmm. a guy called Peter Manstead, and Manstead did what I was totally unwilling to do, which was just to drive Tom to his world titles. Like that mm -hmm. was not what I was going to do. I, I, I'm Tom's brother, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm Tom's keeper. He's my keeper. We look after each other. Mm. It wasn't my role to drive him to victory, whatever it took or whatever crap that was. But I just kind of kept an eye on him and like a lot of, like me and all our friends here in Newport, we just did that. We gave Tom a safe space. It was like he could come home and he'd just still be like Gobbo, the midget, you know, <laughs> like the little boy that we all laughed about. You know, we laughed about him like, oh, what's Tom's next Enterprise, I know they're going to develop a Tom Carroll doll. Well, they actually did down yeah, the track, but at the time it was like a big joke amongst me and our friends. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the Tommy Carroll doll. It's coming out next week. Um, 
Yeah, we just gave him a, a safe space, I think, and uh, and kind of looked after him in that way a bit. And, you know, later on when, you know, the glory had gone, uh, it was still like really, you know, like profoundly respected and all that as a surfer, but he was acting out at home. We tried to give him a, a safe space there and we kind of couldn't really succeed. But fortunately he's made of stronger stuff and he got he got back on the horse and um uh now he gives people safe spaces. Like he's teaching meditation. That's just hilarious to me. <laughs> Tom Tom Carroll, the, the new Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your role and and Tom being such a supernova in the surfing world. How did you navigate the journalism part of your career as well in the sense of did you ever feel like there were conflicts of interest? Did you ever feel put in an awkward situation or were, how did you, I guess, how did you reckon with that in your own career? Yeah, look, I, honestly, I don't think I did a real good job with that. Mm. Um, there was a lot of stuff I didn't report on at the time uh, that I could have just torn the gloves off and reported on and made a whole lot of enemies at the time. I, I mm. chose not to do that. And I still don't know to this day whether that was a good move or a bad one. Right. Um, at the same time, like I was kind of living the same life as everyone. It didn't seem unusual to me at that time as a mid-20-year-old surfer. You know, we were all young and we were all arrogant. We all thought we had the world by the genitals, you know, mm. and we could just do whatever we wanted and we did whatever we wanted. And there didn't seem anything strange about it, but we were acutely aware that, like, you know, you want the wheels to fall off this pro-surfing bandwagon, you know, well, guess what? You know, just get caught with a lot of drugs or get caught, uh, I don't know, doing something else that you shouldn't, you know. You could do whatever you wanted as long as you didn't get caught. Mm. And I didn't report on that. I should have. That was really what a good journalist would have done at that time, and I didn't do it. And uh, I had to make up for that later. But, you know, so be it. There is, I mean, I mean, in my experience, it sounds similar in that there is an element of sort of running away and joining the circus when you go on tour, <laughs> regardless of your role, like whether you're a surfer or a journalist or a judge or a team manager or a staffer, you know what I mean? And it's this bizarre kind of traveling circus in a way and there's sort of a communal protective element to it in a way too there there totally is like you know like it's got that element like a board riders club you know like any club like clubs keep their secrets that's like part of the club mentality mm. right so is it there's secrets that live within that group that that don't go out you know it's like so there's that dumb saying about what goes on tour stays on tour. Right. That's yeah. a kind of dumb way of expressing that. Um, but it's true. And I think those circles have got smaller over the years now. They sort of encompass small groups or individual surfers, mm. you know, who live lives that are a little bit, little bit secret from the other surfers on tour. Right. And they don't know as much about each other in some ways as they might have used to. They know a lot about each other as competitors mm. and the smart ones know a lot about the weaknesses of the others. Like, you know, you, I, I, God, I wish Gabriel would just come clean one day, you know, about what he sees in his 
fellow competitors. Why he chooses to do, why he chooses to do some stuff like it's unbelievable. Just, just, a, anyway. just a bunch of meat at a chascaria. That's probably what he sees. Oh man, he is just saying like that person's lamb, that person's chicken. That's right. <laughs> just, we get one of the little the little cow charts from the chascaria, and he could just point to the piece of the cow. Absolutely. The, you know, I, it's funny. Like the the circus thing and the protection. It's almost like a hive mind rebellion mentality against real employment in a way where it's like, no, we're all in this together. You know, like we're all, we're all here. Like, well, yeah, we're going to be broke, but someone's paying for me to go to Fiji. So like, that's fine. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Look, I really, that's, (laughs) it's all about perpetuating the lifestyle. Right. Mm. And it's at least interesting thinking. Some of it's really insular. Like a lot of time when you hear pro surfers talk about the public, mm. um, they don't mean like the non-surfing public. They mean all the other surfers in the world who are not on tour. Right. Uh, and they feel like they're where it's at and all those surfers aren't. And to be honest, bru- brutally honest, guys, it's the other way around. Mm. It's all the surfers out there in the world who are where it's at. Mm. Uh, you're just like lucky enough to have got on a train that will, goes faster than everyone else's train <laughs> and, and um, you're pulling down hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for like surfing 12 heats. You know, this is that, that's the dream right there. Mm. That's like a, that's a fluke of history. Um, everyone else out there who's surfing is like, they're where it's actually at. And we've really seen that in the past year I, I, I wondered if we were, we might talk about this a bit, Dave. The mm. the fact that the tour has been in hiatus for the last sure. year, um, and how at the same time, oddly enough, uh, surfing itself as a culture and a sport around the world has blossomed. There's been a huge uptake in the number of surfers during this pandemic period. There's been amazing, overwhelming board sales. Wetsuit sales are like 180 percent of what they normally are. The there's everyone who surfs has noticed more people in the lineup wherever they are, whether they be in like Israel or San Clemente, you know. Um, and that has coincided at a time when professional surfing has just suddenly come to a, like into this incredible dead stop and it's mm. just been quiet. So, what do we make of that? It's a good question. It's something that we get talked about, uh, we talk about a lot on our side of the fence. I don't know if there's a ton of correlation or causality between them. I I think that if you look at the boom in the popularity of surfing, there's parallels to the boom in the popularity of mountain biking or hiking or any kind of these, these activities. And I think, you know, a big broad positive in the pandemic is people not having to commute to school or work and, kind of coming to a very like species based realization of like being outside's nice. <laughs> what is be outside, you know? And yeah. and these activities are there waiting for them. And I guess I, I look at it like is I mean there's zero disclaimers or, or there's not one disclaimer in the world that's gonna be able to um, extricate me from my employer at the moment. But I actually look at it as an opportunity because at the end of the day I could pick up a new activity, you know, cooking or painting or um, rock climbing. And I'm curious as to who the best are at it because I'm like, well, what's that look like? And how do they do that? 
And I think at the end of the day, the WSL is is succeeding uh, when it succeeds. When it just remembers, it's like it's not any more complicated than you just created the conditions for the world's best surfing, mm. you know, in a way. Mm. That's it. You know, you kind of don't have to complicate it past that. And maybe there'll be a few degrees of separation between someone who picked up surfing in 2020 and, you know, John John and Tyler Wright. But I don't know, maybe not. Like, I think the only thing, the, I, th- I think a lot of times what gets in the way is, you know, ourselves, we get in the way of that as a business. Mm. Um, mm. But I, I think, I think, I think another way to look at it too is that, you know, I've said this for a long time, like, like surfing is going to be here forever. Like it's, you know, <laughs> institutions will come and go. It's not going anywhere. So the surfing isn't it, that is. So. No, I think that's been the big lesson from the pandemic. It, it just is reinforced for me anyway that, like, why is it people surf, right? Hmm. Like I used to hear it a lot from people, like they go, oh, the freaking industry, the surf industry, the surf media, they've made surfing popular. There's more people in the water. It sucks. It sucks. I hate it. I hate them. I hate everything. And, you know, whatever, okay? And I think this period is, like, notwithstanding the emotional stupidity of that kind of thinking, right, Mm. I do think that this pandemic period has given us a really good insight into why people actually surf. It's, It's not for, at the bottom of it, it's not for any other reason than surfing's really fun. It's really good for you. It takes it out of yourself. It's a challenge. Um, makes you deal with things you haven't dealt with before. Uh, takes you into an environment that's alien to you and then slowly becomes familiar. So all of a sudden this place that other people are scared of becomes a place that you delight in. Mm. Um, and all that stuff is much more precious to people than, than watching a surf contest. Uh, and that's just the surf contest watching stuff is just kind of icing in a way. You know? Yeah, and I, I think it, I, I, t- I totally agree with that. And I think it's kind of when people can be secure in the, I, the true identity of what a thing is, then it can live, live with confidence, you know, where it's like, hey, if, you, if the championship tour is about the world's best surfing and crowning a world champ, great. Let's not pretend it's anything else, you know, because I think that's where people get really upset about it. And, you know, I think you're right. And I, I love the whole idea of, of people going somewhere that a lot of people are scared of and how that is transformative for people in a way. Cause it's, I, I, I think of this a lot where it's like the ocean just objectively is the most inhospitable environment on the planet for the human species. And surfing takes place at arguably the most violent part of that environment where, you know, the ocean meets the sea and surfers not only survive there, they thrive there and they seek it out. And so it's sort of definitionally insane in a lot of ways, but, but that is also kind of like spiritual or, or transformative in a way too, for a lot of people. Possibly. I mean, I've got to say over the, over the years of surfing, I've kind of like, you know, a lot of scales have fallen from my eyes about Mm. the mythologies of surfing. Some Mm. of the things that I used to read in the surf mags back in the seventies and some of the, sort of ideas about surfing that I used to sort of um, uncritically absorb at the time, you know, the idea that it's like this kind of profoundly transcendental experience and, Mm, mm. you know, there's nothing like it, 
you know, and all that stuff. Uh, you know, all that just, you know, I feel like I've just kind of dismissed all that in my head now. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, it, at the same time, it it leaks into you. You know, if you want to get the most out of surfing, you've got to surf for a while and, and let it leak into you and let it kind of like be the sort of thing that maybe you're going to give up a job for at some point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, hopefully not your life, but, you know, at, at least a bit of employment. <laughs> I, well, and maybe, maybe, I think that's a great point. I, maybe transformation's relative. You know, maybe in the 70s, it's, it's, it was more of if I surf long enough, I'll be able to get to Alpha Centauri and then transformation in 2021 is like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't work at a desk for 10 hours a day, like. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it is relative. But back then, the you know Eastern religions were a powerful thing. You know, and they just come back off the Beatles. You know, having sitars on their records, and yeah. you know, it was all about like you know, yeah, trans. Everything was transcendental, transcendental <laughs> at that time. You know, yeah. and so surfing had to be transcendental. Otherwise, why would you do it, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but today, it can just be like paddling out in the morning because you just want to get a couple of waves before you go to work. Hmm. You know, or it can be like the day of the year and you've surfed for 25 years like that kid Chris Luffer did in Sydney this year. He'd been yeah. surfing all his life uh, in a wide range of waves and he'd been feeling it out and he developed these skills and he got a couple of really great boards for bigger waves and then, you know, the wave of the century shows up on his home reef there at Dead Man's in Sydney and he gets it and he rides it and he rides it all the way through and that's the payoff, right? That is the payoff for the life you've just spent surfing, mm. you know, bang right there on that wave. I've got a few State of the Union things I want to pick your brain about. Bring it on, buddy. Let's hear it. The, uh, the Girls Can't Surf documentary released <laughs> in Australia recently. Yeah. You feature uh, heavily in this film, as you should. <laughs> How how did you get involved in the film and, and what was your decision process like to, to participate? Yeah. Look, I was I was really not sure why I was gonna be interviewed for this, to be honest. Because it's not my story, it's their story. These girls, these women hmm. now, these women, fantastic human beings. But I knew the director, Chris Nelius, hmm. and I, I have a lot of respect for Chris. Uh, unlike some people who might think of themselves as being more talented, Chris has the extraordinary gift of being able to see the story and yet not put himself at the centre of the story. Mm. Like, like he can take credit for that film for the many, many hours he spent kind of thinking it through before he began and then the many hours he spent in the editing suite and the hours he spent bringing people in and... Those things take so much work. That that film would have taken so much work from Chris. And he's able to take credit for that work, but he's not taking credit for that story. He's right. stepping aside and letting the girls, the women, take the credit because that's where it's at. And so I was a bit like, fuck, you know, should, you, should I really be getting interviewed for this? Like, what do I know? I don't know anything about their experience really. Like I, I, I know how it was at the time for them mm. and I know a lot about what the men were like mm. um, uh, and I, I loved all those girls back then and, I, you know, I had a lot of respect for them back then, <laughs> you know, but it's not my story. And then after a while I thought, well, if Chris can do that, if he can put himself aside, 
you know, the way he's going to do here. And he really wants me to help him with the story a bit. Then, mm. okay, that's, I can approach that in, that time with him like that. Just as mm. like, I'm just trying to help, help them all tell that story a bit. And it's a cracker of a story. Like, you know, all those women have fantastic backgrounds and they all went through a, a great deal. And uh, I actually think there's a lot of credit to goes, should go to the cinematographer, Anna Howard, who shot that. Mm. Because when, when you see this, viewers, if you haven't seen it yet, they did a great job of lighting the eyes of those women. Mm. Um, so the lighting strikes the eyes of um, Wendy and Jodie and Pam and they, their eyes just light up the way a surfer's eyes should light up, you know, and you can almost see the ocean in their eyes. And while they're speaking, it, it's a bit transfixing. You're just watching the, the eyes and the colour of the eyes and think, well, that's like one kind of ocean. And then the next person comes along and you go, oh, that's, a, that's like Indian Ocean. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it's it's just a great piece. And Wendy in particular is she's very refreshing and hilarious in there and she has the last word in the movie and it'll crack you up, guaranteed. It is such a good film. And uh, I, I feel like I understand the, the hesitation on your part, but I think they were very judicious in how they used you. Did you... If you've seen it, did you take anything away from it that you didn't already know from from your experience at the time? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I think I would have known pretty much everything that mm. you know the rough, you know, edges of everything that the the women spoke about in that show for sure. And I certainly knew about how the boys were treating them and how the uh, surf industry was treating them and all that stuff for sure. I guess I was more reinforced in my feelings about those women that they were every bit the equal of the men of the time, hmm. that in some cases they were stronger and better people uh, and um, they were ignored at, not just to the shame of the surfing world at the time, and I do include the whole surfing world because it wasn't just the industry. They didn't have permission from the entire surf culture to do what they did. Mm-hmm. No surfing man at the time really thought girls could surf any good. They would mm. just constantly be told that. Uh, and they just went, no, nah, yeah, we can. We're going to do it, you know, cop it. <laughs> um, yeah, and to see them today, like, with that light in their eyes and having survived some of that and in some cases prospered from it and with the things they've learned and the wisdom they can bring to bear and especially that bit toward the end where you suddenly suddenly there's Steph on the screen and she's surfing and you suddenly realise, holy crap, this is maybe the best surfer in the world right now Mm. and certainly the most accomplished Australian surfer right now Mm. by a good way. And it's a woman and she's got the same light in her eyes as they do. Mm. That is really sick. That was great. Kelly Slater. We talked about him a little bit. Um, he's been surfing's next best thing for three decades. And you've seen him pretty much at every stage of his career, I'd imagine. How would you describe his current phase and what would you expect to see from him in the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, shit. I can't really see inside Kelly's head at all. Like, like he'll tell you stuff, but he's so mercurial and he's, he's you know, he switches feet, you know? Like he's mm. he's a switchfoot kind of. Like, <laughs> I, 
I sort of feel like maybe he's just finding his way away from the world tour, like away from competing for a world title now. But mm. it's been a really long road for him, that one. Yeah. Um, and it's been it's hard because he knows how good he is and he knows what he can do. Mm. I can't, I'm not sure what the next 24 months holds for him. I just can't imagine him totally letting go of the world tour, though. Not, not for a little while yet. Like he's going to still compete here and there at the very least. And uh, just because it's just he knows how to do it, you know, and I still feel that he, he it's, it's not something that like irritates him yet, you know. It's not something that like when, when a pro surfer, when any pro athlete, when any great athlete, you know, steps away, it's because they're not as interested in competing as they are in doing other stuff. You know, and you can feel every now and then, like you know, Kelly lights up with that competitive drive still, and he he knows he can match him. And like, how can you ever let go of that if you know you can win a heat still? Like, he's got to be taught. Those guys, those guys, those guys have to thrash him, kick him off the tour. Well, and it's and it's one of those things, you know. I'm in my 16th year at the uh, ASPWSL now, and we were talking about when I started. You know, where it was like, well, how do we, how do we design, you know, this elevated stately departure for Kelly Slater? And it's like, I don't know. Even back then, it's like, well, you might have to shoot him in the head and drag him off stage. And by that, I mean his competitors, figuratively for mm-hmm. everyone listening. But you know what I mean? And, and I often wonder about the psychology with him because you can kind of, you can't really compare him to anybody, but if you look at other sort of world's greatest, it's like their ascent up the mountain of greatness happens over the course of their life. And there's sort of an immortality component to it. Mm, And if you think about the greatest of all time, like they kind of peak physically or competitively, what, like mid to late twenties, maybe early thirties. And you see it time and again, when they're no longer, competitive with the world's best like it's like falling off a cliff Mm -hmm. but then you look at kelly who's not in his mid-20s or early 30s 49 so i think of it for him is the psychological challenge for him is his mountain's way high he's way higher up the mountain because he's just been going for so much longer Mm -hmm. so i wonder what's going to happen when and i mean i wonder i've talked to him we experience it together in a way but it's like it just must be something that no one in history has ever had to go through psychologically. That's true. I'm pretty sure his own picture of it has changed a lot over the years. Like I was reading an interview that we did in maybe 94, I think, uh, not so long ago. It was quite a lengthy interview and he was, he was a lot more like kind of gaga and open back then, like about where he was at as a person. Sure. And uh, he actually had a, quite a clear vision of what retirement was going to look like for him. You know, he said, like, I'm, I'll just be fishing, a couple of kids, just fishing and hanging out in Florida. And, like, he was actually looking forward to that at that stage of his life. And and yet so much has changed for him through that time, you know. Like, like he stepped away at the end of the 90s thinking, oh, yeah, maybe I'll be able to step away now. Like, he was honestly, I think, seriously thinking, like, oh, I won't come back, you know. Yeah. And then he got kind of lured back and then he got in that incredible battle with Andy. <laughs> and I think that, like, hardened him. It made him into, like, this steely competitor who could, you know, who was very d- 
difficult to approach and just so much better than everyone else at competing. And, and like, Mick took him down a couple of times in that period, mm. but mostly he just started winning world titles again. Yeah. And it, just such a daunting person at that time, so strong after that battle with Andy. Yeah. You know, since then, like, he's he's just been kind of fighting age in a way maybe, but sure. I don't think so. I think he's just been, like, going, well, I am really fucking good still. I can still win heats. Like, why mm. shouldn't I win heats? I want to win heats because, you know, if he's in a heat, he wants to win it, like, whatever way. And I don't even know how many heats he's been in, like, maybe 1,400. Yeah, right. You know, something like that. There is no heat. No, there is no way of winning a heat that he hasn't done 20 times already. Like, of course. So what is there left for him to learn? I, I don't know. Yeah. So it's, it's up, but it's his call. Like, at some point he'll go, you know, I don't really don't want to do this anymore, and he'll step away. I, I part of me thinks too, because I had to work through it. Was uh, the terms of his Quicksilver contract and the fact that the first event of the year was a Quicksilver event on the Gold Coast, and he almost fell into competing for a whole season a lot of time because he do so well. Like yeah. well, after he was kind of like, well, no, I think I'm stepping away, and then he's like, but I have to go to the Gold Coast, and he win, <laughs> and sort of the collective. Like, Community is like you got to go yeah. for a number title, man, and he's like, yeah, he, he didn't really fight it. Yeah, then he's in Chopu, and he's like, oh fuck, it's really good. I'll win this one. Uh, yeah. Like it goes on and on. Yeah, that can happen for sure. It just gets away from you, I'm sure, but at that level. But fundamentally, like no one, like Andy had a good crack, didn't quite yeah. break him, went the other way in the end, and then you know, this you know, if someone wants to break him, or if this crew is wants to break him they could do it now but they he's not going to let him do it they're gonna to have to break him break him down yeah so one of the new things we added to the podcast this year is the top five segment and for <laughs> you we asked you what your top five weirdest unexpected irreverent or most bizarre anecdotes it says true or untrue but we'll go with true from your research and knowledge of professional surfing so what are those mm, far out Man, I'm gonna to have to reference these a bit. I, <laughs> I, I was really, um, I've got. To, I'm sorry. I'm, I may feel, seem a little conservative about this because, you know, I think of that, you know, the terms of that in which that top five are couched, mm. and uh, I could literally pick out fifty moments <laughs> that would be, you know, definitely grounds for a lawsuit, <laughs> and I'd just get dumped. You know, like, like. Like we'd all get dumped, everyone would get sacked, right? <laughs> but, but I don't think those like naughty moments are always the thing, anyway. Like you know, just because someone was snorting cocaine in a in a basement in Sydney in 1986, like who cares? Like it's it's more interesting to look at the things that actually changed the whole pro surfing game a bit. And so I kind of went into them, and I and I thought about like one of the first ones is that the weird and little-known incursion of tennis legend Billie Jean King in professional surfing. Okay. So hopefully this is not too long of a story, but I'll try and tell it. <laughs> go quick. as long as you like. Far out. Okay, well, here we go. There were no women in professional surfing until 1973. In 1973, something amazing happened with women's sports. Billie Jean King went up against that old guy, what's his name, and thrashed him in a tennis match. 
and suddenly it was like women can beat men in tennis. It was the biggest sporting moment of 1973. It made Billie Jean King more famous than any of the US Open she'd won or whatever, <laughs> right? So this started Fred Hemmings thinking. Okay, and Fred was like the major domo pro contest promoter of the time. He was running those events in a way they were the thing, right? So it got Fred thinking and he thought, you know, what? wouldn't it be like a kind of PR coup? And he discussed this with um, the crew from Smirnoff. Wouldn't it be a PR coup if we, if we had a woman compete in the Smirnoff Pro? <laughs> you know, because look at the fuss they made over Billie Jean King. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the guy from Smirnoff said, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So Fred decided to invite Laura Blizz, who was a great surfer in Hawaii at the time, to the Smirnoff Pro, and she was just going to surf in a heat with some of the men. So Laura surfed in the 73 Smirnoff Pro, and she, I think she beat one guy, the Australian Rick Nielsen, uh, brother of Paul Nielsen. And, you know, it being the day, um, Rick was really brokenhearted about this and he just felt like he was just completely emasculated, you know, gosh, beaten by a woman. This led to the development of the women's tour by a circuitous route. Uh, at the time in Hawaii, there was a thing called the women's, the women's Hui and they ran all the contests in Hawaii and they did ding-fixing classes for women. It was girls only. Uh, and the contest organiser for the women's Hui was a lady called Patty Panisha and mm-hmm. Patty was enlisted by the women's Huey to go to Fred and say, why'd you pick Laura? Like, there's lots of us. <laughs> okay. So Patty went and bearded Fred. You can imagine Fred's like a, they didn't call him deadhead Fred Hemmings for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and here's this scrappy young Italian girl who'd moved to Hawaii about three or four years before and just fallen for the place. And she went and saw Fred and said, listen, you, you've got to start including more women. So... The very next year, there were six women in the Smirnoff Pro, and this went on and on until there was a full-on women's tour in in Hawaii, you know, with lots of prize money and a lot of success, and that was way before women's surfing took off around the world. So Billie Jean King. But... (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So Laura's success, though, in that contest led her to be invited to a show on CBS that was called like some kind of like ultimate sportswoman or something. And so she went on and she competed with five other sportswomen from around America in, in a full-on reality TV bonanza. Um, one of those people was Billie Jean King. And uh, Billie Jean had by then moved to Maui. She had a condo on Maui. And she struck up a friendship with a, another resident of Maui uh, a woman whose name will be very, very familiar to um, st- students of professional surfer, surfing uh, named Margot Oberg. So Billie Jean and Margot got to be pretty good friends. And at the time, first women were trying to get pro surfing going and by 1980 that was in the hands of Debbie Beecham. Uh, Debbie was a California girl and she was trying to plan out like a path for women's pro surfing and she couldn't figure it out. And Billie Jean at the time was getting going with the women's version of the ATP, right, Mm -hmm. Um, which was just a big success down the track. And Margot asked Billie, what should we do? And Billie Jean said, well, why don't you just start your own association like you're killer, like just make something happen. 
And so, sure enough, they started a women's version of the IPS and everything started rolling. The rest is history. So, Billy Jean King, boom. <laughs> so that's one. Right. That's in tune with the modern zeitgeist, right? Okay. Uh, that, that, that feels like it was programmed by the simulation because of so many things that lines up in, in, in the WSL in the last several years, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole because we'll be here for 10 no, hours. That's it, yeah. So how Australia's first big pro event narrowly escaped the drug bust. This is a good one. You got one. one drug story in there. That was good. Yeah, That's one good. drug story. Uh, why not? What the heck? So this goes back to Graham Cassidy. And Graham Cassidy was a newspaper man who had fallen in love with surfing uh, when he wandered down the beach with some of his mates from the Sydney's inner west. Uh, he wandered down to Manly Beach during the 1964 World Contest and he saw the greatest surfers in the world and he saw all the girls who'd gone down there to watch these greatest surfers in the world and he thought to himself, surfing's gold, I've got to get into it. And so he moved to Cronulla, he started surfing, uh, he was working for a big publishing empire in Australia back then known as Fairfax, the Fairfax Press, and he started writing a surf column in the Fairfax Press. He got involved with Midget Farrelly, trying to promote little pro contests here and there, and he was indefatigable, Cassidy. He, he just persistently drove and drove and drove surfing into the mainstream press, even when there seemed like there was no reason for it. Anyway, 1973, again, 1973, big year, Cassidy got the editor of a very classy weekly newspaper in Australia called the National Times to do a lifestyle feature about surfing and how it was the new sport, it was the next big thing, it was waiting to blow up, okay? And about a week or so after that story ran, he got a phone call from Coca-Cola's New South Wales marketing executive, a guy called Stuart Litchfield, and Stuart said, we want in on this crazy new sport, what can we do? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Cassidy dreamed up this thing he called the surf about. And uh, this it was a bit of a sus name, okay, like like it was <laughs> taken from the Indigenous Australian term walkabout, which was what people had come to call the movement of Indigenous peoples, the nomadic Indigenous tribes of Australia around the country. And Cassidy thought surf about because we're not going to be stuck at one beach, we're going to use all the northern beaches of Sydney for mm. this contest. And he got a radio station called 2SM involved and it's young promo manager, a guy called Brian Walsh, brilliant Brian Walsh. And they put together this contest and, like, they invited everyone, like all the Hawaiians, you know, all the best Australians and got them all there on the northern beaches of Sydney in May 1974 for this contest. But at the time, 1974, professional surfing and Surfing, this was like a cultural collision waiting to happen. <laughs> the first day of the contest was, you know, the contest was based at Narrabeen, which is ironic considering that's where CTs have ended up this year. <laughs> but the first day it was going to be at Warrywood, which is just over the hill, right? And Michael Peterson, one of the favourites for the contest, this is where professional surfing was at the time, Michael didn't have a car, didn't have a vehicle. So he said to Graham, hey, Graham, can you give me a ride over to Worrywood? And Graham said, sure. You know, Graham's got this little VW Beetle. Michael hops in the car. Graham and Michael are toodling up the hill towards Worrywood. And Michael starts rolling a joint. Then they get pulled over by the cops. Okay, and um, 
Cassidy's like, okay, and he and he gets out to say hello to the policeman and Michael's just sitting there in the passenger seat with the joint in his lap. He didn't hide it or anything, right? And Cassidy gets out and he's just going, this is where professional surfing ends in Australia, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just the end. We're at the beginning and it's about to end, right? He says, hi, officer, what can I, how can I help you? And the, and the cop goes, look, um, your back driver's tight is a little bit flat. Like maybe you want to look after it, you know. You don't want to be driving around the flat tire. And Graham goes, oh, okay, well, there's a service station. There's a, like a garage. There's a mechanic just up the road here. I'll, I'll just pull over and get him to replace the tire. And the cop goes, fine. Okay, have a nice day. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and Cassie just got back in the car and MP lit up the joint and Cassie drove up the hill realising that professional surfing Australia had just passed its first real big test, which was just don't get busted. <laughs> don't get busted. Shit. Oh, wow. It would have been <clears throat> a fitting ending right away, I think. It, it would have been all time. And, of yeah. course, MP went on, won the contest. You can watch it on video. It's crazy. Like yeah. his performance is crazy. Anyway, I don't know. I guess the, the third one is the incredible final day of the 1974 Smirnoff Pro. And um, I was going to see if it was too indulgent of me to read a bit out of the manuscript of this book that me and Sean are working on. Not um, at all. Please about, give, us a, about, give us a preview. Okay. It's a, it's a slightly sardonic history of professional surfing, but um, <laughs> we're not sardonic about this moment because it was freaking all time. Okay. So I'll just have a look for it here in my stupid computer so I can... Uh, when is the release date on this it. book while you're looking, Nick? When's this coming oh, out? Oh, man, we've been struggling over it. It's like we split it into two, right? I was working on the first half and Sean I was working on the second half. And it's just so huge. It's just, it's it's taken us a long time. We're really hoping to have it out about this time next year, if not a little bit before. But the story is really big and you've got to go everywhere with it. Otherwise, yep. you can't boil it down to what it really is. Sure. And so it's meant that we've had to talk a lot to a lot of different people. <laughs> anyway, so this is about November 27, 1974. Um, this is three days before the event would have had to have been cancelled altogether. The surf had been really shit. They'd had, a, they'd had a small day at sunset. They'd got the heats done. Um, there were like four heats left, like three semi-type heats in a final. So on the 27th, the surf started rising and by midday it wasn't that small anymore. Sunset was kind of pumping and by twilight, sunset was closed out, okay? So here's the frigging narrative. Thanks to modern surf forecasting, when a big swell arrives on the North Shore today, every surfer's known about it for a week. But in 1974, there was almost no real surf forecasting being done. Great surf arrived unheralded with all the drama and mystery of a true natural phenomenon beyond human control the blessing and the curse of pro surfing. The only people with a clue of what was about to happen might have been a couple of avid surfer meteorologists in the University of Hawaii offices with access to US Navy satellite data. As it was, everyone just heard rumours of some storm a thousand miles away and if they couldn't sleep the night of November 27, it was because they could hear the increasing roar of the swell. Reno Abelira slept just fine. He was woken early, not by the roar, but by his friend Jimmy Lucas at the front door. Jimmy's eyes were pretty much popping out of his head. (laughs) 
Jimmy ran around Reno's garage in classic big wave froth mode while Reno ate, ate some granola and wondered which board to ride. He settled on one he'd surfed a handful of times at Giant Sunset and Wyomere Bay and headed on down to Wyomere, where a handful of the great big wave legends of the day, Eddie Eichau, Kimber Hollinger, Peter Cole, Rick Grigg, James Jones, Hosa Angel, were already sitting on their boards way offshore, ready to ride the biggest surf since 1969. Reno's fellow competitors were stunned. The surf was conservatively in the 20 to 30 foot range. When Waimea is that, that big, approaching sets turn the entire horizon black. You don't see the big lines coming in, just a generic blackness, as if the Pacific itself had arisen in some terrible final reckoning with the land. Indeed, as they stood there in little groups in the Waimea parking lot, one such blackness arose and exploded across the bay into a vast whiteness and surged all the way up across the beach in four dune and washed clean through the lot, causing people to scurry for cover. 17-year-old Mark Richards, who, along with Sean Thompson and Wayne Bartholomew, had been one of three alternates for the event and only scraped in after Wayne had paid Mark's entry fee for him. Couldn't believe his eyes. Doubt surged through all their veins, but Fred Hemmings wasn't having any of it. Like the crew already in the lineup, Fred was made of old-school stuff. He'd won the Makaha contest twice. He'd been world champion against the odds. He'd been on Duke's own surf team. His event fee was on the line. The road into Waimea was already jammed in either direction with potential spectators. The promoter and the surfer in Fred could sense this was a great day ready to happen. Later, he saw it as a day of reckoning when the young would-be professionals were able to find their true selves in the prehistoric power of surfing's outer edge. Later, MR would send him a framed and signed picture thanking Fred for sending him out that day. Now, as Fred talked with Jeff Hackman, who'd been the sole competitor to tackle a preheat warm-up surf that morning, he made his call. He double-dared his uncertain quarter-finalists. You don't think it's rideable? What if I go out and catch a wave and ride it? Will you guys surf then? Now, people who were there all tell this story in a slightly different way, but they all remember that moment and their accompanying realisation, oh, shit, he means it. Fred really was dead ahead. Off to the side, Reno rubbed wax across the decks of his two boards, the favourite and the backup, considering his options. Back in 1968 in Puerto Rico, he'd been the teen sensation, the MR-style kid on the rise, riding his thin knife of board with immense flair and style. Now he was 24 and famously graceful, even regal. On land, he was always dressed to the nines. In the water, he was word-perfect, precise, low-slung, fast and unflappable. Almost nobody knew the origins of this princely Hawaiian's act. Reno was, in fact, from hard and unprivileged stock. His father was a pro boxer who'd become involved in the dangerous Honolulu gambling scene. He was shot to death when Reno was just a boy. Things did not improve for some time, but Reno's mother had given him and his five siblings a golden piece of advice. Just because you kids are poor doesn't mean you need to look poor, she told him. Reno saw this as the origins of his precision and his elegance, as it a desire to assert himself in the face of the world. Looking sharp made him feel sharp. So when Fred called the contest on, Reno didn't question it, just picked a board and went. Just four heats were surfed that day. Nobody tried to evict the big wave legends from the lineup. Nobody would have succeeded in doing so, even if anyone was foolish enough to try. Instead, the competitors surfed side, surfed side by side with these incredible characters, 
trading waves freaking out and in some cases being guided through the experience of riding the biggest surf they'd ever seen. James Jones had a terrible wipeout, slipped his spine out of joint, back into place again and kept surfing. Richards managed a fourth in his semi-final, missed the final by place and was never more glad not to have to paddle out again. Hackman and Reno conducted an epic duel, one that would eventually be decided by just half a point. And Reno rode a wave that remains unmatched in Pro Tour competition. It came during his semi-final heat, a very big wave Reno knew, but Waimea can be tricky. From the takeoff, you can't always see that blackness. Some of the biggest waves can come in low slung, not showing all of themselves. You have to make a decision early, and Reno did, turning and putting his head down to paddle. Just as he did, he sensed Jose Angel doing the same thing. Jose wasn't even in the contest, but was famed for taking off on anything. He would wipe out the base of a 30-foot wave and come up laughing. Reno paddled thinking, Jose, Jose, is he going? Then he heard Jose Angel yell at him, go! Reno went, blinded by spray, coming back up the wave, relying purely on feel and that flawless style as the board fell away under him. His vision cleared halfway down the wave face and he remembers Jerry Lopez paddling up the face past him, eyes full of fear, preparing to abandon ship. Then he was past and riding it out at the wave base as the huge lip fell and exploded behind him. People called that wave 35 feet, big as anyone's ever ridden at the bay. Rena won, of course, and used the $5,000 prize money to fund his adventures on a world pro tour that didn't quite exist. A year or so later in 1976, his stylish surfing on a small twin fin fish surfboard at the 2SM Coca-Cola Surfabout in Sydney inspired Mark Richards to begin playing with twin fins, a shift that led directly to MR winning four world titles in a row. Three months after that, Jose Angel died while freediving for black coral in 90 metres of water off Maui. And that is how pro surfing started, and that's why it's here today, (laughs) stuff like that. Well, and I love, I, I mean, I totally appreciate that um, the manuscript and when it does come out, I'll be the first in line to get it, <laughs> is largely sardonic because there's more than ample reason for it to be even in 2021. But, you know, th- th- really that story strikes a chord for me in the sense of like, well, why do you still do it? You could do anything else. Well, I don't know if I could do anything else. But because occasionally there's moments of magic and like, why wouldn't you want to be around for that? You know, like... Yeah, and that's moments of magic like that at the start of that whole mad operation. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's why so many surfers were willing to go with it, I think, sure. you know. Like people never saw any film of that until, you know, a couple of years later when um, a couple of surf films came out of it because it never ended up on ABC Wobbler Sports. ABC Wobbler Sports would not carry Smirnoff Pros because they were advertising alcohol. So (laughs) that thing just came across in the surf mags of the time and everyone heard about it through the grapevine of surfing and the grapevine Mm. inflated it and built it into even more amazing than it was maybe. And, you know, really that's why pro surfing exists today is moments like that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, let's talk, what about 76? You got on that. You got it on the list. 76. That's on the list because there's a 1976 men's champ, Peter Townend, right? Yes. But there's no 1976 women's champ. No. <laughs> and, uh, you know, why is that? 
What is that, Dave? I never heard the story, but I'm, I, I, it's, it's plagued, it's plagued me forever because anytime I, it, it requires clarification, literally every time it comes up where it's like, oh, well, who was the world champion 76 for the women? I'm like, there wasn't one 77. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing to know about this is that there hadn't been a world champ for ages by now. Hmm. Um, you know, there'd been a 1972 world contest in San Diego, which was a Farrago and, and like ended not very well for for many people. Uh, and then there'd been this gulf, this interregnum, the, the International Surfing Association wasn't running any effective events and professional surfing had started, uh, but it hadn't coalesced into a tour really. Mm. And a lot of the surfers really wanted there to be a tour uh, because, holy shit, they could see this golden lifestyle out there somewhere. <laughs> You know, well, it didn't exist yet. I mean, I think the total prize money in all of the events in 1976 was $77,000. That's every cent of the prize money on tour that year. Uh, so you can't really say it was like <laughs> it existed yet, but it nearly did, okay? And some surfers were going right around the world, and there were contests right around the world in 1976. But at the beginning of that year, there was no world title on the line. No one had said a word about it. It was just like, let's go. Let's go around the world. And the boys went around the world and a bunch of the girls went too. But they started showing up places like in South Africa. That was the first leg, right? They showed up there because they'd been told there were going to be contests on for them. Mm. And they got there and the, the people in South Africa who were responsible for running events sort of shamefacedly said to them, well, look, we didn't actually expect you to show up. <laughs> And we haven't planned anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they just like went, okay. And then they went to Brazil where they were, the girls were greeted with open arms and uh, had a great time. But the men's events were ticking over and people were surfing in them. And by October that year, it became obvious to some of those men, uh, to some of the people who were really interested in seeing a world tour happen, um, that that maybe they could construct a world championship out of that year's events. And it was a bit weird because nobody knew they were doing it. Like no one, <laughs> no one who was going around surfing in these events knew they were competing for a world title. Then and suddenly in October it's like, okay, we've got all these points that we've sort of added up from the contest and guess what, you know, PT and Ian Cairns are winning and, <laughs> and you've, got, you've got three contests and a way to change that. Let's see what you got, right? And so PT ended up winning uh, and he did the best in those three events anyway. So you could say, fair enough, okay, far out. But there was no such agreement made by the women. Uh, And this is because for most of the tour, there'd been no prize money in the women's events. They just didn't feel like, as a group, they didn't feel like it was a great idea to present a world title when they hadn't even known they were going for it. Uh, in, the, in that way, you might say they had a little more integrity than the boys. Oh, I was going to say, so, uh, yeah. you know, example number 14 trillion that women had standards um, when the men yes. maybe. Yeah. That's right. And, they, and, and so they got together and said, I guess there's no world title for the women this year, but we'll have one next year in 1977, won by Margot. All right. Mm-hmm. There's one person who really doesn't agree with this, and that's Jericho Poplar. Sure. <laughs> um, now, Jericho goes back and she looks at how it would have been with the points and how she'd gone that year in 76, and she sees that she definitely would have been world champion that year. 
uh, if they'd done the same thing as they did with PT in the men's. And uh, to this day, she's got a torch for that that world title that didn't happen. And, you know, who knows, at one point someone might say, okay, you can have it, but they haven't, <laughs> they haven't said that yet. Anyway, I, have, yeah. I, I get the impression that she has talked to PT about this because I'm almost certain that when he was on the podcast, he was on episode one, he brought it up. He's like, well, you know, Jericho did pretty well. <laughs> Man, that's interesting that, like, of all the world champions, I think PT is the one who has really, you know, made it work for him. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it, it's... It's a real treasure in his life, that world title. You know, even though it was constructed at the last minute, even though maybe there's some surfers from that world that year who are kind of like, well, you know, if, I, if I'd known, I would have done better in like New Zealand in April or some shit. Sure, yeah. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, PT really owns that world title and he's really carried it through his life and he's, he's really like clear about it, that he's, he's a world champ, that he's there with Kelly and with MR and with my brother and with Tom Curran and all of them. They're all in the World Champ Club and PT was the first member and 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 it's really stayed with him his whole life. And, and it's a testament to actually the power of that, you know. You know, for the people who win a world title, it's a hugely defining moment in their mm. lives. And if you won two of them, they don't get less defining, you know. Sure, and, and yeah. it's, that, it carries tremendous power in the surf culture, I think. Um, anyway, so that was that one. And What's number five? We got the last I, one here. I guess number five is funny because like the first really big three sponsors of professional surfing were a uh, caffeine-based energy drink, basically the energy drink of the seventies, Coca-Cola, right? um, an alcohol company selling vodka, and a cigarette company. Selling tobacco, <clears throat> and the cigarette company was Gunston, and and it was based in South Africa, and Gunston was just all time. Like they did these ads, men make Gunston great, and and there was a man, you know, it was like the Marlboro Man, but in 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 freaking South Africa, you know, and for some reason, and I think it's, this is because of uh, the amazing Peter Burness, uh, it was a successful businessman in Durban who decided that um, professional surfing was something really worth getting behind and his son Michael went on to be a really great surfer. Anyway, Peter uh, inveigled Gunston into sponsoring professional surfing in South Africa along with a couple other people, Ernie Thompson, Sean's dad, um, and tangentially I think Midget Farrelly who was really involved in the startup of professional surfing in South Africa. So they got Gunston on board and, and and this was really a weird thing because like, yeah, surfers smoke, but pretty soon you realise if you're a surfer and you smoke, you realise that this was a real, you know, this was like a career ender, right? Like I can remember, I used to smoke and I remember the moment I gave up, right, was halfway through a three-wave hold down at Sunset Beach and I was just like underwater going, I'm going to drown and then I'm going... <laughs> If I don't drown, I've just got to accept the fact that I'm going to keep doing this and I can't smoke anymore because I will drown. And <laughs> so, you know, surfing and cigarettes, I don't think so. They don't really mix. But in South Africa they did with Gunston and, 
I heard some great stories from some of the crew in South Africa. You know, they'd go to meetings with the people from Gunston and you'd go into the Gunston boardroom and they'd be all there, these crusty guys, and they'd all be smoking. They'd be sucking on the ciggies and cigars and stuff and the whole room would be full of smoke and they'd be like, okay, man, what have you got for us? <laughs> and... <laughs> And they'd be going, well, thank you for sponsoring surfing. (laughs) And during the research for this book, um, I tried to contact some of the people from Gunston and I only really managed to contact one person who was like slightly related to it, a marketing guy. Uh, I couldn't contact any of the people who'd been in that boardroom. And why do you think I couldn't? I'd imagine um, there was a health-related issue with them not being around anymore. They're all dead. They're all dead. The Siggy's got them. (laughs) Anyway, that was pretty weird. And, you know, Gunston, you know, gave a lot of money to surfing. Good for them. But tobacco, that's just not on anymore, is it? No. No. We've moved into CBD or something something related. Something like that. Shit, that's a pretty damn good top five. um, (laughs) We do have one more segment. It is a lightning round. So it's 10 questions and okay. you are to answer as quickly as you can. Okay, go. If you can only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, what would you choose? Thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Pizza. Last book you read? Still reading it. It's called When They Severed Earth from Sky and it's an in-depth look at the idea of myth in... Uh, human history. Mm. Mm. Be- best surf film ever. Haven't seen it yet. One wave you never have to go back to. Mm. Wow. I can't answer that fast. I don't know what it is. I've, uh, all the waves I've ever ridden, I've always thought, wow, this would be so great. I guess I'll never surf pipe again, maybe backdoor. Sure. If, you know, if Michael, Michael Ho, Michael, you can surf backdoor, I can surf backdoor. You know it, buddy, don't you? Yeah, you do. <laughs> if you only got to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Newport Peak. Best person to share the lineup with. Little brother. Worst person to share the lineup with. Little brother, <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Completing my next writing assignment. Nick Carroll, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Tell people where they can read your writing and where they can check you out. Well, I write a lot for surfline.com. That's a pretty good place. Uh, write in various magazines and stuff too. But uh, and, and a lot of writing that you would never notice, um, TV stuff and that in Australia. But, yeah, surfline.com, it's my favourite website. It should be yours. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Uh, and uh, it's always a thrill to talk to you, man. Like you're one of the smartest people in surfing. The, the WSL is very lucky to have you. Uh, I appreciate that. The editors are going to be paid to cut that part out of the podcast, <laughs> but I will I will sleep with it knowing, knowing it well. And I'm sorry I'm not coming to Oz this year. I hope we get to connect in person soon. The world will open up again. We'll all get it, more barrels. It will, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. So that's it. That's the re-air of the lineup's March 2021 conversation with Australia's Nick Carroll. 
I hope you enjoyed it. We will return next week with all new episodes. Until then, you can contact us at, at the lineup pod on Instagram and Twitter. This episode is reproduced by Hendo Byer with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kumaye, and the Gurungai Aboriginal people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday.